Welcome to Vibrant Visionaries, conversations with clever, compassionate, multi-creative professionals about their creative process, their latest projects, and lessons they learned along the way. Today, I am very, very, very excited (laughs) to tell you about my guest. It's Martin Wist. If that name does not sound familiar to you right away, it might be because he's a production designer, but he's one of those people that is responsible for a huge part of how a movie feels. And you're going to learn all about what goes into making something like, oh, I don't know, Bad Times at the El Royale. Yes, Martin was the production designer for Bad Times at the El Royale. That is the most recent offering by Drew Goddard. I got to see it at Fantastic Fest. And then afterwards, I was able to wrangle a conversation with Martin from my home studio here in Oakland. So just a little tease, we are going to release a podcast talking about how much we enjoyed Bad Times at the El Royale over at my my previous podcast, Cabin Minute Cast. So check out the link to that. I'm not sure exactly when that episode's going to air, but Molly, my co-host, and I are going to meet up with a, another friend, another podcaster, and talk about everything we loved about the film. And if you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, I think you're really going to love it. It is a real blast. And as I mentioned in this episode, a real feast for the eyes and the ears. There's great music by Michael Giacchino. I think that's how you pronounce it. And um, some cool needle drops too. Uh, The cast was fantastic. And if you want to hear more about what I have to say about the film and and what I liked about it, then go check out cabinminutecast.com. But for now, enjoy listening to Martin Wist. Hi there. Hey, Martin. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. <laughs> so, I actually had a previous podcast called Cabin Minute Cast where my co-host and I talked about the film The Cabin in the Woods <laughs> in great detail. So, I'm really excited to talk with you today about Bad Times at the El Royale because I'm already really really in love with your work. Oh, thank you so much. So, I just got to see it once, uh, Bad Times, because I was at Fantastic Fest, so I got to see see it there at closing night. But I was um, really excited, as they say, uh, it's totally in my wheelhouse as far as aesthetics go, with the, that California plus Reno plus, um, and I, I live in California and have been up to Tahoe. And so I'm really familiar with that area. And I've also traveled and gone to these kind of funky vintage hotels. And I would just love to hear about how this all rolls out. Like, are there storyboards or mood boards at the start? Or how does this whole aesthetic get rolling? Well, as you know, I've worked with Drew quite a few times now. And He's uh, such a brilliant writer, and his scripts, everyone undeniably just gets me excited as I read it. And setting the era, the year in the script, the location of Tahoe, like you say, sort of puts you down a certain path to begin with. You're not in Vegas, you're in Tahoe, and you're... You're in that era, but you're not the high, most high end, of course. 
And then the, the color palette was described in the script. Uh, Drew wanted to have warm in California, warm colors in California and cool colors in Nevada. And so that as a starting point is a fair amount, you know, um, and we knew that we wanted it. Well, Drew wanted it, described it as sort of seen better days, mm-hmm. rode hard and put away wet. <laughs> and um, and so that wanted to be part of it. There a layer of dust, a, you know, fraying and age and just wear from being a place that a lot of people spent a lot of time at and it didn't have the the renovation ever after all that took place it, it just sort of sat so once this um once you sort of get to that point we it sets a stage and we start with a lot of reference um some of it very abstract and moody um definitely color and lighting and to a certain degree architectural but to begin with it's just a feel and then well what happened on this film before we even we had a sketch of what the feel wanted to be and drew had some mood boards and then i added my mood boards and created large walls of images that we could just talk to and respond to and be yeah a little of this no not so much that and sort of ease into from a very macro point of view ease into tightening up the the look uh in terms of aesthetics but what became the most important thing to solve actually was not necessarily aesthetics we we came to a point that was loose enough that we kind of come felt comfortable we knew kind of where we were going but what i realized very early on is I need to, we need to figure out the spatial requirements. Mm. And so we took a sort of put the, the aesthetics to the side for a second and started just going line by line through the script and laying out, I made a model of a, basically a, a crude version of what the lobby ended up being just with some, primary elements, you know, there's the front door, there's the bar, there's reception, there's a refreshment area, here's the line, here's the jukebox, and then the parking lot, of course, there are the rooms, and that's how far away they are there. So these big building blocks of, of spatial concerns were addressed first so that, um, you know, I could do trace layovers, and we would talk, and we'd imagine, well, how does Darlene get out after she smashes Doc out into the parking lot, and how does she move around to see with Laramie's getting shot by Emily? And how does all, and then of course, with scenes that are played out with multiple points of view, you needed to know that as well. How did Miles get from inside all the way over to see into room seven with Emily? And how does that all happen at once, but separate in the filming? So you can imagine that's just one example of the sort of the complexity of the choreography of all the scenes needed to be worked out to a point that I knew, oh, this had to be this big or this has to be this far away. That's way too close because if they're this close, then 
how would they get from there to there? Or you would notice a person from here to here. The other things where it's not just purely the, the correct distance from one distance to another, but pushing it for mood, at, for instance, with Laramie over in the bar, and we wanted an uncomfortably far distance away that he would pop up and be start this conversation in the in the opening scene inside the lobby where he's making his coffee sort of his uncomfortable distance all the way over to the reception that big walk that he does to say that yes this was a space that held a lot more people than this whole movie is going to have so i'm just sort of laying that out first because the design started there. The physical design, the architectural design started with those big spatial requirements. And then once I, I knew those roughly, then I started to get into you know, the stairs and the levels and this walkway all the way around and the sunken pit. And then right. where the fires and well, we didn't have fires at one point, but we needed to light on place a light on fire. So we're like, well, it was Rose light a bunch of candles, but Drew didn't want candles everywhere. So then we came up with these cauldrons that at one point were fixed to the ground, but then that didn't make any sense because if you hit it, you would just hurt yourself and rather than it spilling out. And so then I came up with these waterfalls of beads with the cauldrons hanging off of them that in the end became a major design element in the space and also was there in order to basically start the massive fire for the third act for the ending of the movie so you can see the um the sort of the, the script requirements and the design itself are very very fused so it becomes a, a open conversation between drew and i as we develop the interior and uh, and then as i get then i get into surfaces and textures and designing all the wallpapers and all the the patterns of the carpet, the carpet was a huge long decision, <laughs> you know, and it, because we're, everything's custom made. So there are these massive out times for ordering and everything's critical. And there's so many, so many different elements that needed to fuse together to look elegant and composed for a wide shot, but also be very dynamic for all the tight shots. Well, you gave uh, a really nice through line from when I think of what, or how to describe or let us know out here in the um, non-film production world what production design means, that it's not just the window dressing, but that it's the full production. So thanks for going yeah. into such detail. It's really true. I'm kind of uh, whenever I see a movie with my friends and talk about it, and I was last night I went and saw this Bad Times with a couple other friends and who didn't really know and it's like the design is the picking the color chips or like you say the window dressing is just one sort of almost small element after everything has been worked out and particularly on this film because it had to all be ready to go on day one of shooting every single scene that took place after they drive Darlene drives onto that parking lot was planned out before we started shooting. It wasn't the type of film where, you know, anything was left left a chance. No, we'll figure it out on the day. It was all choreographed. Then I have sort of once I like I say, I have that skeleton, that base to foundation to build off of. Then I 
just then the fun begins of, of picking out all the colors and the textures and the ceiling treatments and the, the furniture and upholstery and everything was pretty much everything was custom made. So it was a real dream for me to be able to just have full reign of the, the whole, whole design from, like I say, working out blocking scenes with Drew to those final touches of aging near the door you know, where the chain's hanging and it wants to, you know, be used a hundred times. It was a real endeavor, real deep sort of design commitment on this one right up till um, shooting time. And uh, so it was, it was, I have to say, it was a real, it was a real treat for me. Oh, good. It it was a real treat to watch and I look forward to watching it over yeah. and over again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw it for the third time and I swear each time it's a different experience. I almost like it more each time I watch. Yeah, well, one thing I love about these days, how easy it is to, to rewatch films, um, you know, after you've seen them on the big screen is that you know the story already. So now you get to concentrate on other things because you're not going now who's this now what's going to happen next now wait a minute and you know you get to look at everything else behind the behind the actors and their clothing and yeah and i like the design of the hotel to me felt both fresh and new and different but also really did it was rooted in layers of vintage style like i said i could feel sort of several different layers of classiness, <laughs> quote unquote classiness. Yeah, but, right. Um, but yeah, that the wood, the textures, the gold, the very specific blue that you used in there. And then there's marble and then the vinyl and the sitting in booths and also having the automat. So that felt like cafeteria-ish, yeah. but also the bar felt like a stage. It was really interesting. And then also there's that motor court feel just because of the where you imagine sort of the hotel rooms are laid out around the sort of main space. It was really, yeah, it was a feast for the eyes. Wow, thank you. Where was it um, built? Oh, it was uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia. Okay. We, uh, I built the the exterior day scenes, I built the front facades of the wings of the hotel, the parking lot, and the front stairs and front facade of the lobby up to a certain point, and the drive up out on a location that, you know, no interior stuff was done out there. It was just all the exterior for daytime because lighting for day it would have been it wouldn't have worked very well for a number of reasons inside the massive stage that we ended up going to for everything else mm -hmm. so we shot that on outside and then we brought a lot of the key design elements like the neon sign and some the screens and brought them back onto stage to add to the secondary build like i built the exterior kind of twice mm -hmm. uh, all the sort of higher money, like I say, design pieces we, we used and windows and doors we used out on location and brought them back on the stage. And then inside the stage in, in Burnaby, Vancouver, this um, it's called Mammoth Studios. And it's just this mammoth space that used to 
be a, I think it was Sears warehousing facility that is, I don't know how, actually I figured 250,000 square feet or something just oh, as wow. big. I um, asphalted the whole space, made the parking lot, brought in all the greens, built all of the, all of the rooms, all of the wings, the interiors of the room, the back hallway, the interior of the lobby and the exterior lobby were all built in place as one contiguous set that you can move from one to the other. So there was all kind of real. Uh, and once we got in tonight, it was easier to control the lighting out in the parking lot. And then um, actually my brother, his name's Joel Wist, he's the special effects coordinator. He had rigged up the ceiling of this massive warehouse space all to with the pipes for the water for the rain so he could at a at a flip of a switch turn on the rain in one area or all areas have different levels different intensities the rain magnitude grew during the um progression of the night and also had the interior plumbed up for fire and at a certain point we pulled out like certain of the walls and banquettes and, and carpets and replace them with steel versions that were all plumbed with gas lines to do the fire. And so all the fire, in fact, was real. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was very, it was just real. That was like in camera um, and all the rain was in camera. It was, it was shot old school. That is fascinating. And that reminds me, uh, you know, a little bit of when we delved into the cabin in the woods, how exciting it was that there was so much that was real. Yeah. And the special sure effects. About that. Yeah, that's cool. So, so for my podcast, we specifically talk with very creative people, people I call vibrant visionaries, people who have a lot of different creative talents. And I like to ask about things you've learned along the way, like what sort of things have you learned maybe from other productions in the past that you're able to you know, take into a project like this and say, oh, we've done this before, or oh, we know this does work or doesn't work, or, or new skills that you learn, Any, anything like that you can share? Um, well, let me think. Uh, I don't know if there, it's hard to answer that question mm -hmm. in, in specifics. Um, I might be able to come up with some specific examples, but I have to say every film, every project leads to the next one in every way, every moment along my career, I've learned and been able to apply something that I've learned to the next, um, project. And often I have to say, the most important thing that I can take from one project to another is instinct and a growing awareness of instinct and faith in the process um, because it can become pretty scary at points. And, you know, we're, you, there's self doubt, there's huge financial pressures, there's time schedule pressures. And you, you really as a creative have to, work at not letting that affect you. And I don't mean not let it affect you as to be irresponsible of any of those things, because those are a critical part of the design you need. As a designer, you need to be able to design your time and your budget in order to maximize the output 
for all the requirements that the scene and script is asking of it. So the the main thing that I that I feel is that I've been able to grow on is is the instincts and and of trusting your own process, but also um, it's things spatial stuff too that as a designer you need to kind of just have a sense that wow 250 feet sounds really long but actually it's that's not long enough that feels wrong it needs to be 400 you know and a producer's looking at you going what do you mean it needs to be 400 feet long and you have to have <laughs> confidence to go it's just is that's you don't want to hear it but that's actually what it is and um from trial and error and time after time when you when you kind of kind of come out the other side you and you you were able to reflect um, and go. That was that was the right instinct and that feeling I had that I trusted. I I'm going to remember that and um, take it to the next time when you're sort of you're in darkness and you're not quite sure how you're going to pull it off, you know. And then of course, in terms of techniques, you I learn things every movie about different techniques, paint processes. You know how to make make custom made flocking wallpaper. Where to get that done? What to watch out for? Carpet. How with different methods of carpet now? Plaster techniques. You know lamination for reflective objects. How do you build a parking lot inside a warehouse space that's going to be able to drain? You know however six hundred thousand like gallons of water per, you know, all that kind of stuff or build a set that's going to be able to be lit on fire safely. And, you know, next time I'll take, I'll know that I need to budget more for fire retarding the set, you know, that's something that was new. That was a surprise how expensive fire retardant paint is that you need to paint the wood with first before you even think about the finish of it. So I don't know, man. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a constant evolving process, um, doing what I do. And, uh, I think the most important thing is just, just really staying aware and open to the process and, and reflecting and, and knowing when you're wrong, like you've got to be able to walk away. You can't get hung up on things. You can't be precious um, when it's wrong, it's wrong, and you need to move on. And that's something, just getting back to this film, um, working with Drew Goddard, we're, we're of the same, cut from the same cloth on that. If we, we'll, we might try something, might work on it, work on it, work on it, and think that that's the right thing. And in the end, just just don't feel it. Like, you know what, it's just not, that's, that doesn't work. And a be, be ready to abandon it. And even if a ton of effort's been put into it, and then, move on and trust that whatever's going to come next is for a reason and undoubtedly is better. Yeah. Really well put. I've definitely found that in my own creative life as a singer and a podcaster and collaborator. And the, the less we're attached to those um, ideas, not knowing where they're going to work out or not that, yeah, that it's, it always seems to, lead to something better when you're ready to, when you're able to drop that thing. So it's a, it's a, the creative life is an act of faith. I mean, you, you have to be involved 
and believe in the process and have faith that it will it will work out and it can get really murky um but that's kind of all we got at the end of the day we're not adding numbers together to get a sum it's it's a it's a voodoo voodoo pot we got going you know Definitely. Yeah. And I think having faith in something where you don't exactly know where it's going to end up, but trusting that you are knowing that you're keeping an eye on the things that are real, like it's real that there's a budget. It's real that I've said I'm going to produce this specific thing, but then also being open to what unexpected happens and be open, like you said, and trusting that intuition is going to lead you to something something great so yeah yeah and you're all alone essentially so you have to trust me you're all alone to a certain degree i mean i should sort of qualify that part of this that i do love is yes you're my position i'm the ultimate decider of my my world um of course with the big big decisions being approved with the director um, and so there is that you, you need to drive the look and have faith that you're you're the one doing that. But then also, I think part of it that's amazing about filmmaking that I love. I mean, I'm an artist, too. I, it's just a painter sculptor in the studio. So I'm alone doing that. And I love that process. But to be able to have talented people around you who can help you and you can bounce ideas off or they can kind of squint their face at you and like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, no, Martin. <laughs> it's like, really? No? Like, yeah, no. Um, to have those people around you is, is so much fun. I mean, it's just great to be able to literally be in this, uh, an open creative uh, conversation you know, it's it's a, it's a really is the joy of of making films, and I've I've sort of grown to realize over the years I didn't really know, and and more and more as I do it, I I really cherish cherish the collaboration. Likewise, and I actually coach creative people, specifically multi-creative people such as yourself. So that's a cool. lot of what we talk about is. Is, is sort of finding our own personal balance, which is going to be different and evolve, but over these um, sort of solo projects and our um, creative like sculpting and painting and then other ones that are collaborations and how they both can feed each other or, you know, how they feed our souls in different ways and stuff. So, yeah, wonderful. Awesome. Well, we've gotten to that magical time where we're going to wrap up our conversation today. Thank you so much for spending this this time with me. It was really wonderful to hear about the film and your process and, and just to hear your voice. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. So everyone, this again is Heidi Bennett of Vibrant Visionaries. And today's guest was Martin Whist, production designer of, among other things, the recently released Drew Goddard film, Bad Times at the El Royale. You can find me at vibrantvisionaries.com. And Martin, is there a, where, a special place people find what you're doing, like a website or Twitter or anything like that? Um, I, I don't actually... Uh, really reside in, in the uh, social media so much, but I have a website, which is martinwist.net that I 
put some of my pictures of movies and some of my artwork on that I sort of kick around. So that's the space you can you have a look. Cool. Well, I'll point people there. And I will also uh, let everybody know that for my other podcast, Cabin Minute Cast, um, that's at cabinminutecast.com, we're going to release a special conversation over there just about um, how much we loved Bad Times at El Royale. So uh, I'll make sure to have a link to Martin's website and also a link to that special episode where we'll really dive deep into our love of this new project that you're a big part of. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya. Thank you.